This is the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it is February, and there's, there's no shortage of big political news in Jersey, uh, the, the state that never sleeps. There's, there's never any downtime. I mean, for, for Jersey, quietness is for the faint of heart. And for now, the story of Sean Cattle, he is the, the New Jersey political consultant who, who stood before a federal judge less than two weeks ago and admitted to his role in a murder-for-hire scheme. And now that's, that's on the back burner because lots of other things happened this week, but it's, it's not really on the back burner. We're all, we're all thinking about it. We're all talking about it. Everybody wants to talk about Sean, Sean Cattle. I mean, there is, there's nothing new to report, as, as, as Governor Murphy might say, about Cattle's role in the murder of Michael Galdieri. He is a, a political operative. He was the son of a former senator. Uh, so right now, Cattle is at his home in northwestern New Jersey. He's out on an unsecured bond. He is wearing an ankle bracelet. And we still don't know what the motive was to have Michael Galdieri killed. And, and I think it's fair for all of us to assume that a, a big shoe is going to drop at some point. Uh, every lawyer I speak to uh, says the same thing to me. You don't stand in front of a judge, admit your role in a murder, and then not immediately be remanded into custody. This is unusual. So cattle, I think, a lot of other people think, is he's cooperating on something that's that's for sure. And whatever Michael Galdieri knew or did that got him killed, it's entirely possible that Sean Cattle's just a middleman. Uh, the idea that the Galdieri murder is somehow tied to the killing of John Sheridan, a, a respected fixture in New Jersey politics for decades, that continues to be hugely fascinating. There's no evidence of it yet. Uh, uh, maybe there never will be. Maybe maybe they are both tied together. But there's enough there there to make this a viable theory. So so I'm I'm watching very carefully uh, as to everything that's happening in the Tron Cattle investigation, and I'm looking forward to today's show. I will be joined by Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill. Uh, she just returned from a visit to the Ukraine and and a meeting uh, with the president, uh, President Zelensky. Uh, this possible invasion of Ukraine by Russia, this makes it one of the hottest spots in the world. So you're not going to want to miss what Congresswoman Cheryl's take is on what she saw and what she heard. Uh, Ian Smith is a South Jersey gym owner who made national news for refusing to follow Governor Phil Murphy's business closures and his mask mandates during the, the early months of the, the COVID pandemic. This week, he formally announced his candidacy for the Republican nomination for Congress. He wants to take on Democrat Andy Kim. Uh, Ian Smith's going to join me today. He's going to talk about his congressional campaign and about his life. And I promise you're not going to want a miss, to miss a, a word of what he has to say. And later, 
one of my favorite people, labor leader Hetty Rosenstein, the former state director of the CWA. I mean, while she's retired, she's still a, a powerful force every single day in New Jersey politics. And we're going to talk about one of the biggest news stories in New Jersey this week, Governor Murphy's nomination of a new state attorney general. Uh, his choice is Matt Plackett, his former chief counsel. And in Jersey, the attorney general is just an enormously important job. Uh, Plackett was one of the architects of Phil Murphy's first term. He'll, he'll become the acting attorney general, which comes with all of the, the power even before the Senate confirms him. That's going to happen in less than two weeks. Uh, so there's a lot of great topics this week. Please, please just stay where you are and keep listening. And And I want to talk about redistricting and gerrymandering. It continues to be a, a, a huge topic of conversation in New Jersey, across the nation. Uh, David Wasserman of the Cook Political Report, he's a Jersey guy, and he's the number one expert on, in the entire nation on House races. He says there was some, a lot of good news for Democrats in New York. That's clear. That makes a big difference on, on redistricting and on, as both parties battle for control of Congress in the midterm elections. And, and there was some closure on congressional redistricting in New Jersey this week. The state Supreme Court dismissed a Republican lawsuit that was challenging the Democratic map. And, and uh, those of you who, who listen to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour regularly, and thank you, thank you if you do, uh, uh, you've, you've heard me talk uh, about the embattled tiebreaker, John Wallace. Uh, Justice Wallace, former Supreme Court justice, uh, he served as the court-selected independent tiebreaker. He is now, now going to be a little bit... Uh, uh, less in the spotlight than he has he has been uh he's the guy who said he picked the democratic map because 10 years ago the the tiebreaker picked the republican map and, and he's the even steven guy i guess uh the decision that he made came with no real explanation uh and 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 quite frankly a lot of people both parties think it was an unsatisfactory amplification later uh the public didn't get to see anything until after the decisions were made and after the vote was taken. Uh, but I'll say this about Justice Wallace. It's, 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 it's a damn shame that at age 79 and after three decades on the bench, uh, this shall be his legacy, uh, doddering, wobbling, stumbling, floundering, placeholder who's, who's going to go down in history as perhaps the the most ill-fitted tiebreaker to ever uh, grace the the redistricting process in new jersey politics uh remember all politics is local and next up is the map that most political insiders seem to care about uh that's the legislative redistricting all 40 cent and assembly districts are going to be redrawn. They have these maps have to be done by March first, and and this week, former uh, Senate President Steve Sweeney lost his bid to get back his seat on the Legislative Redistricting Commission. Uh, Democratic State Chairman Leroy Jones had tossed Sweeney, uh, replaced him with Laura Matos. Uh, elections, everybody, elections have consequences, and Sweeney's defeat in his own district. Uh, by by Ed Durr, a Republican, it has set off a massive realignment of politics in New Jersey. And less than 100 days ago, Sweeney was 
easily one of the most powerful legislators New Jersey has ever had. Now he's been booted from the commission. And not too long ago, no one would have dared to take Steve Sweeney out like this. Uh, Sweeney disputed Leroy Jones's authority to remove him. He, he said uh, that he, he and other Democrats uh, had a contract to vote as a block, and that contract protected him from being fired. But, but the judge... He didn't buy it. So the, the process continues without Sweeney or, or anyone from the South Jersey Democratic machine on this commission. And, and that changes things considerably. I watched this, this court hearing. Uh, I'll tell you one takeaway, uh, maybe because these, the recordings of these shows hopefully will live forever. So, I, so I'd like to, to get this down there. The lawyer who, who represented the state was the Solicitor General of New Jersey. His name is Jeremy Feigenbaum. And I, I'd heard a lot about him. He started as an intern in uh, Senator Loretta Weinberg's office. He went to Harvard Law. He clerked for Justice Kagan. Uh, without me taking sides, it's fair to say that Jeremy Feigenbaum, I mean, this, this, this guy is a name people should remember. I, I, uh, I hadn't watched him in court before. He was impressive. He was sharp. This is, this is one, one brilliant political uh, legal mind. And, and he's 32 years old. I wouldn't be surprised to see him on the Third Circuit of the U.S. Supreme Court someday. Uh, so there is, there is just a, a huge amount to watch now. Now we're, we're coming up on Monday. Uh, both parties are going to release the first of their redistricting maps. Uh, and 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 that will be up for public review. Uh, Phil Karchman, I think, is going to be entirely different than John Wallace. Uh, I think he gets it. I think he sees what's going on. Uh, I don't think he's going to allow parties to to play some sort of, of mind game or smokescreen on these maps. So I think the maps that we're going to see these will by no means be final maps on Monday, but but they've got to resemble uh, what may be uh, the, the best and final offers. So, so we have a lot coming up, and we have a lot to see in New Jersey uh, this week. And I will be right back with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill. Uh, we're going to talk about her recent visit to uh, the Ukraine, and then I'll speak with Republican congressional candidate Ian Smith and, uh, and, and social justice leader uh, Hetty Rosenstein. This is David Wildstein. I am the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back, everybody. It's David Wildstein. Mikey Sherrill serving her second term as a congresswoman from New Jersey, former Navy helicopter pilot, uh, importantly, a former Russian policy officer. And as a member of the House Armed Services Committee, she recently returned from Ukraine. Congresswoman, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So so this situation between Russia and, and Ukraine, it's it's got to be one of the scariest places in the world right now. What, what did you see there? Well, David, you know, that's kind of remarkable because what you just said, because as we were going, I was receiving briefings from the House Armed Services Committee about how I might have to escape um, should Ukraine be invaded while I was there. And yet when I arrived on the ground, um, you know, the people are going about their business. I met with many uh, of the Ukrainian people, not just leadership, who were saying, no, they weren't afraid. They felt that they had been at war with Russia since 2014, that this was not new, um, and that they were going to 
keep doing their jobs, keep going to work every day, keep, you know, making sure their kids get to school. But if Russia did choose to obey, every single person I spoke to said they were going to resist that. They were going to fight against the Russians. They were ready to fight against the Russians and not cede one inch of their their homeland. Are they, in your opinion, uh, are they ready? Are they ready if Russia were to invade? Well, certainly they are overmatched by Russia. We have uh, done everything we can to really support them from 2014 to make sure that they were a harder target. Um, But I'm afraid that uh, should Russia choose to invade, there will be um, a very quick period of time where they overtake certain areas. But then I think the Ukrainian people will make those areas hard to hold in the long term. And I, I think that's what Putin has maybe underestimated because we saw him go in in, in 2014 and very quickly uh, find success, hold on to territory in Crimea and the Donbass. I don't think the Ukrainian people are in the same mindset. So everything I heard, even you know from the people on the ground, before 2014, there were many people um, who had ties to Russia. In fact, Ukraine has many Russian speakers, native Russian speakers. And, you know, there was a fairly mixed view of Russia. Ever since 2014, the country has united um, and part of their national identity has really become fighting against Russian aggression. Um, They know very well what it looks like when Russia overtakes territories. One woman said to me, you know, right now when I tweet, I feel something, I can tweet it. When I'm concerned about something, I can put it on social media. If I do that in the occupied territories, uh, I get thrown in jail and I can't live like that. And Congresswoman, Mike, I'm speaking with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, President Biden, I think he sent 3,000 troops to, to Eastern Europe. I mean, that that's to back up NATO. Is the, is the U.S., the U.S., my understanding, not not readying for, for war there? No. So, it, David, when we went over there, the first thing we did, we didn't actually go straight to Ukraine. We stopped in Brussels to meet with our EU allies and our NATO allies to make sure we were fully aligned uh, in supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression, fully ready to deter in any way we could this Russian aggression through um, as Senator Menendez has labeled them the mother of all economic sanctions in part, but really, I think, in part deterring Russia just through the unity and and strengthening the transatlantic relationship. And and that was um, something that I saw very clearly as I was in Brussels. We went on to Ukraine um, and again saw the unity of purpose there. But you're right. The troops being moved there are with our NATO and EU allies. So We're ensuring that we're, I think, keeping stability in the region. These were troops that the Baltic states, that Poland, that Romania, different states in the region want NATO and U.S. troops there to ensure that uh, Russian aggression doesn't go any further than Ukraine should they decide to invade. And Congresswoman, I know I know your delegation, your your CODEL was a bipartisan group and and from from opposite ends of the political spectrum. Do you. Do you see the United States on this particular issue of Russia and Ukraine, or, or is uh, is there much of a difference between Democrats and Republicans on how you're viewing this? Um, no, in fact, in Congress, Chairman I Meeks, mean, in Congress, in Congress, yeah. Yes. So Chairman Meeks, who is the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and Mark Green, who is the um, leading member, the member leading the Republicans, 
on this CODEL. Uh, we're both her. I, I heard both of them say at separate times that what Putin has succeeded in doing is not only um, strengthening the transatlantic partnership, uniting the U.S. and its NATO allies, uniting the U.S. and our European Union allies, but uniting the United States Congress, <laughs> sometimes the most difficult task. So um, we were very united there, uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats on this trip speaking very forcefully in support of Ukrainian democracy. And I think we were all very moved by the stories we heard from Ukrainian leadership, from the Ukrainian people, and then from the USAID organizations who, as they've measured, they have different measurements for the strength of democracies. And as democracies in the region have done some backsliding, um, Ukraine has either hold steady or continued to make improvements in the face of a, a trend going the opposite direction. And to see the strength of the faith and democracy of the Ukrainian people was really, I think, moving to every one of us. And I am speaking with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill. Congresswoman, what's your, what's your read on the the relationship between Russia and China. If, if Russia invades, do you think China will back them up? So I think what we're looking at, and, and this is something I, um, when President Biden was meeting with Congress, he mentioned directly to us, and when he was meeting with the House, that she has suggested that democracies can't function in this new economy. And part of the reason I think Ukraine presents such a threat to Putin is because it is a democracy in the region that is very similar to Russia. They're Slavs. They um, have practiced the same religion. They're, they're very tied together in many ways. And yet as a democracy, when Russia's not undermining it, Ukraine economically is, is much more vibrant than Russia is and presents, I think, a direct threat to the stability of Putin's government and, and his suggestion that his authoritarian regime is um, stronger than any democracy. So I think Putin and she are united in this effort to undermine democracy, to make a, a different um, path for the global economy and for global leadership. And I think that is dangerous to democracies. And to me, that was one of the reasons it was so important to see that that reignited transatlantic relationship, the sense of of purpose and support that I felt in Brussels, because it is important for democracies in the world right now to stand together and against that kind of oppression. You mentioned Senator Menendez's proposal, the, the, the mother of all sanctions. Uh, are you... Are you concerned that Congress might take so long to actually act on that, that this this invasion could potentially happen uh, before the, the, the U.S. Congress has their act together? No, I think um, Congress is working um, quite on a, on a good plan to come together. Um, I do think right now we're we're working very hard to present a deterrent effort in the hopes that Russia won't engage. But certainly um, we can come together. And I think what's really been important is the, the work the U.S. has done overseas. And that's something that maybe people here at home don't see. I I will tell you that I saw it firsthand as I was in Brussels in speaking to our NATO and EU allies, the view of Russia is that there are just three players in the world. 
there is Russia, there is China, and there's the United States, and each should have these spheres of influence. And, uh, and, and areas of the globe should fall under these spheres. And that is contrary to the United States' belief in sovereign identity and the ability of states to choose their government and their allies. And so it's really critical that we work together with Europe. And Europe, I think, has um, really appreciated the administration for bringing them into the talks, for not allowing Russia to simply have a conversation with the United States about Europe, that um, Europe is involved in this. And, and they were very complimentary of the briefings that the United States has worked hard to give to them. And you saw that unity. And I think that unity of purpose is really important. And again, I think a miscalculation on Putin's part. I, you know, the, the conversations I was having in Brussels um, were some of the strongest shows of unity I've seen uh, in several years between the United States and Europe, and it was really heartening to see that. And I'm speaking with Mikey Sherrill, congressman from, congresswoman from, from North Jersey. And, and Congressman, I, I, I struggle so much on, on, on foreign policy. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm typically more, more attuned to, uh, to, to insider politics and process. So I, so I hope I can, I, before you go, ask you, ask you about redistricting. I mean, this is, this is what last week was the fourth anniversary of, of you scaring Rodney Freelingheisen out of the race. Now, now you've got a district that I think is is more democratic, but but do you do you think you were the recipient of a of a of a gerrymandered district? No, I don't think this is a, a gerrymandered district. As you know, we have bipartisan redistricting, and I think um, both maps, both Democrats and Republicans worked hard to create a map that would be accept, acceptable to the neutral. Person And I never had a sense that this, you know, if, if we were simply Democrats trying to gerrymander for other Democrats, this is not the map we would have written. Um, but uh, I do think it's a good map. And I, I, I do. I am very excited about my new district, although it, it's funny. I, I always kind of laugh because I'll show up in different parts of my district and, and Bill Pascrell will show up for swearing ins and stuff, even though it's my it district. used to be and his, yeah. It, exactly. And you do feel this connection. I feel a connection to to parts of my district, even though I've lost them, because, you know, those were the areas that, that helped me take the seat. And, um, sure. and so as excited as I am about the new district, it's a little bittersweet because there are uh, so many great towns that um, – that I well, allow once, another lucky congressperson to serve. And, you know, I, look, I mean, I, I say this because we're, we're, both, we're both Essex County people. I mean, you, you go from your hometown of Montclair, and, and you're only on Bloomfield Avenue for about a minute before you hit the 10th district. And you, and you have to go through yep. the 10th to get to other parts of your district. So this is, uh, uh, I mean, it's a, re, it's a journey. I mean, I've been through five of these, so, so it's... Uh, uh, it, it'll it'll all settle out, but but I, I do have one last question. This is this is the question I am I am certain that you don't like to get, but uh, but I'll ask it anyway. The uh, Democratic Party is going to need a candidate for governor in 2025. Phil Murphy is term limited. Uh, what what are you thinking about running statewide? Everybody's talking about you running statewide. It's not that's not a secret to you. So what are, what are your plans? By, well, I have to tell you right now, as much as I love my new district, it is uh, not going to be an easy race by any stretch of the imagination. We're already, you know, putting the campaign in place. So my focus right now is on 
2022 um, and serving the 11th District of New Jersey. Okay, I will. I promise you, I will keep asking you the questions. I hope that doesn't. <laughs> I don't that does, I hope that doesn't mean you won't come back on. <laughs> Never. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill. Uh, thank you so much, and I will be right back with a uh, with Republican Ian Smith. He is running for Congress in the third district. And this is David Wildstein, and I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. So Ian Smith is a Republican candidate for Congress in New Jersey's 3rd District. That now goes from Burlington into Western Monmouth and into Mercer County. Uh, You may know his name. He made national headlines in 2020 as an objector to Governor Phil Murphy's closure of businesses and mandates. Uh, Ian, how are you? Welcome. I'm very good. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, and thank you for coming on. I I know it's, it's this is this is probably two years ago not what you expected to be running for the U.S. House of Representatives. What what made you decide to do this? Well, you know, over the past two years, we have been immersed in the world of politics. Um, I guess by default, just because of the stand that we took at Attilus and, and the things that ensued afterwards with Governor Murphy. And, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people and I've, I've gotten really, really involved. I was always interested in politics, um, but this was a new level of things. And over the past two years, I've been thinking about the cultural issues that we face in American politics today, and the uh, the idea of a career politician, the idea that uh, more often than not, politicians find themselves uh, finding extreme wealth while in office, and uh, making these long-lasting careers and, and catapulting themselves into the upper echelons of society, I think, is a fundamental flaw in how we approach politics. And I think the solution to that is to change the culture by uplifting ordinary citizens and putting um, people back into politics. And I believe I am in a unusual position to mount a formidable run of a, of a back to basics campaign where nobody's interested in getting wealthy and nobody's interested in making a career. I want to help my town. I want to help my county. I want to help my district. I want to help the state of New Jersey. I've been a lifelong resident here. And I want to bring that idea back to politics. So that is what inspired me to finally make the decision to take a shot at this. And, and you know, I don't want to I don't want to under understate what what happened in in 2020. I mean, you are you know you were you're a young businessman. You own a, a a gym in Belmar. I don't I don't know that that's necessarily a you know a fitness empire that you're you're leading. It was a small business, and you defied sure. Governor Murphy's mandates. I mean, you you incurred I mean hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines when when you made that decision to do that when you said. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to follow uh, Governor Murphy's executive orders. You know, you know, regardless of what it might cost you, it could have cost you your, you know, your your business. What what was going through your head? What made you decide to take that position? Well, my business partner Frank and I we're, we're two regular guys. We're, we don't have a fitness empire. We have one gym that we put our entire life savings into, and we worked extremely hard to make it work. We were living our own little slice of the American dream. And when somebody comes along and tells you that you're no longer allowed to 
go to work and provide an income for your family. Um, we wanted to understand why. And once we started to look into A, the science, and B, the politics, we had a lot more questions than we were having answers, and that caused us to dig deeper and deeper. And, and we really made this our full-time job. And um, it, it just didn't make sense. The public health policy was laughable at best. Uh, and we, we see this now, two years out, and it was pretty obvious to us at the time, as long as we took the time to do the research, which we did. And um, we decided that we were going to do the right thing. And we felt that reopening, reopening publicly and showing the world a robust safety plan that we put into place that could be copied by anybody, whether it was a, a business, a church, a school, the, the measures that we put into place were so far above and beyond the standard that government had set for safety measures, and they had pr they've proven to be effective. We wanted to help our community, um, and, and we felt like it was the right thing. You know, it's, you, you can't shut people's lives down and cause the type of damage that the lockdowns have caused whenever you feel like it with very little, with, with very little sound data justifying those choices. We watched Governor Murphy and political leaders all around the country, for that matter, not just governors, but it, it, was, it was a lot of people making decisions based on really sloppy and really weak scientific data um, backed up by a media push. And it's just not fair to the average person because that's who suffers in these cases. And I want to ask you, I mean, one of, with your announcement uh, this week, uh, your one of your one of your opponents in the race said you were you were unelectable and and look there's there's some issues that I think are are fair to people to to raise about Ian Smith as a candidate for Congress. I mean one of them was a was it was it was a tragic situation. You were uh, I guess 15 years ago you were probably about 20 years old. You were you were driving Correct. drunk and you crashed and you you know a 19 year old uh, was killed. Uh, now, now that you've had time to reflect on this, and this is, you know, this is this is going to be an issue in the campaign. So I want to bring it up. How do you how do you answer critics who say that that part of your life uh, makes you unelectable? Well, I make no excuses for my behavior. I never have. I never will. What happened that day was entirely my fault, and it's it was inexcusable behavior. I was a young 20-year-old punk who didn't see past the narrow uh, tunnel vision of his own selfishness. And, um, you know, I woke up, actually, uh, to, to clarify details. Uh, I actually didn't drink and drive. I was at my apartment all night, and I woke up the next morning. Um, so I never in a million years had I thought at 20 years old that that was something uh, that could happen. But either way, it happened, and... I had to learn to live with this because the, the, the pain that I caused other people is immeasurable and it'll never go away for some people. And I can't blame them and I can't be upset with them for saying anything they choose about me. That's something that I brought on myself. But the way I chose to look at it, and I did five and a half years for this, was that when I got out and I had completed my sentence, that I had a duty to live a good life and to try to bring as much positivity and good into the world as I possibly could to 
and, and there's no way of ever making it up, but to try and make up for my grave mistakes 15 years ago. And that's something that I carry with me every day. And it's, it's something that's made me who I am. It, it impacts every choice I make um, from that point on. And, and I'm speaking with Republican congressional candidate Ian Smith. Uh, one other issue that's been raised, and, and again, I, I think it's, I, I want to ask you about it because I, you know, it's, it's been brought up, and I, and I think I think you should comment on it, which is, uh, which which is what happened on 9/11. And I'm I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at a, a, a social media post that you did. Uh, it was last year, and you said never forget 9/11, innocent lives lost, but you. You said the government has never told us the truth about what happened that day and those who profited from the, the war on terror. What, what does that mean? Are you, are, you, are you saying anything other than the fact that, that Osama bin Laden and terrorists took down the World Trade Center? No, I'm saying that a healthy skepticism for the government official story is not a bad thing. Our government has a history of lying governments around, around the world throughout history. Uh, have a long and extensive history of lying or omitting the truth, and that there's nothing wrong with asking some questions to uh, answers that we haven't gotten. And it, again, I don't claim to know anything. There's no conclusion uh, in that statement. But I think the skepticism of your people in power and your politicians is something that Americans should uh, do more of, to be honest. You know, we, we see political corruption all the time. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking questions. I think but dialogue. But you're not saying this was a conspiracy forward. theory. No, I'm just saying that there's that, that the government should be completely transparent and that it's not. And and, and I'm speaking with with congressional candidate Ian Smith. I, I, this is going by very quickly, and I, I hope we'll, we'll have a chance to talk again soon. But but sure. the the contrast between you and Andy Kim is is stark i mean you know he is he's a straight laced you know sort of nerdy and i personally i say that as a as a compliment uh nerdy guy you are you know you you're 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 a gym owner and and you know with you know beard and bearded and 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 tattooed and you know you, you know neither of you sort of look like what people uh, have expected in a con- you know or have seen as a congressman over the years. I mean, you know, both of you, I think, are are fairly authentic. But but why should voters toss Andy Kim out? Why shouldn't he be reelected? Well, I think Andy Kim toes the the party line of um, who is at the helm of our federal government right now, and um, I'm less about left and right as I am uh, about top and bottom. You know and federal government is leading us in the wrong direction. I don't think anybody can really put up a good argument uh, otherwise. And Andy Kim has voted along that Nancy Pelosi party line. Um, and we're seeing a lot of fallout from those type of policies. There's America last policies where we're basically printing money. We've gotten to the habit of printing trillions of dollars uh, with stimulus bills. We've normalized that at this point. Um, federal debt is astronomical. We're at 300 or excuse me, $30 trillion dollars. Um, so it's less about Andy's Kim party, and it's more about the establishment and getting back to um, people who actually care about where they're at and aren't in politics for ambitions to climb that ladder. I want to get in. I want to serve my community. I want to do the best to follow uh, the wishes of my constituents, and then I want to get back to my life when I'm done and open the door for the next regular citizen to step up and serve their community. 
And you are, I mean, you're, you're, you're running in, in a Republican primary. You are, you know, clearly, clearly the 800-pound gorilla in this room is Joe Biden. It, I mean, this is, and, and, and I say this every time I speak to a, a, a Republican congressional challenger, uh, pre, you can't deny the, the history here. Presidents uh, lose members of their party in the Congress in their midterm elections. Is, is, this, is this election as much about Joe Biden as it is about Andy Kim? I think they represent the same thing. Um, and again, I'll, I'll bring that back to this idea of politics as usual and establishment politics. Right, I mean, that's which you know, I would I, say, which, it, to, to clarify, which I would say uh, is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. It's the business as usual um, party politics, which I'm not interested in. No, and this is this is going to be an exciting race. And this is, uh, you know, I mean, I, th- I think Democrats did well in redistricting, but but not well enough to to claim this is a safe seat. So there's there's a lot to watch here. But uh, Ian Smith, Republican candidate for Congress, New Jersey's third district. Thank you for joining me. And I hope I hope you'll come back soon. And I hope we'll keep talking about this race. This is one of the, going to be one of the hottest races in New Jersey. Thank you. I, uh, I really enjoy the tough questioning. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And and I will be right back with uh, former CWA director Hetty Rosenstein. We're going to talk about Matt Plotkin's nomination as the attorney general. So please don't go anywhere. This is David Wildstein, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. Hetty Rosenstein retired last year as the state director of the Communications Workers of America, but but she remains one of the most influential people in New Jersey. Hetty, welcome. How are you? I'm great, David. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Last time you were on the show, you had just announced your your retirement. Uh, you know, Forty years with the CWA, but but you know now, now that you're back, it, it doesn't seem to me that you've retired. Well, I didn't say I was retiring. I said I had left my employment, and I did. I left my employment with CWA, but I'm still doing lots of New Jersey political work and pursuing all of the other interests that I have. Uh, I've joined the ranks of the unemployed. (laughs) That's... Uh, but 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 not the unpowerful, not the unpowerful. You remain a force in New Jersey, and I and I think I think you always will be. No rocking chair for me. That's good. That's good. I, I, I want I want to ask you this this I want to ask you about big news in New Jersey this week. Uh, Governor Murphy announced his nomination of Matt Platkin, his his former chief counsel, as as the next attorney general. Uh, was Matt Platkin the right choice for this job? I think he's a great choice. I think he's a great choice. He's a really, uh, you know, somebody like Matt Platkin comes along once in a generation, in my view. And it's a great opportunity to have him have lasting impact like this. He's brilliant. He's open. He's a problem solver. He's very easy to talk to. And he thinks deeply about things and how to have great change. I think it's a great choice. I mean, there's, there, there's no doubt he is, he is a smart guy. I mean, I, I think one of the things, one of the things that, that 
is as clear as he was an architect of Governor Murphy's first term. I mean, for for better or for worse, that's that's up for other people to determine. But but I'm sure you dealt with him. What what was he like uh, when you were advocating for uh, for the issues that concerned you, and he was on the other side of the table? Well, I'll give you two examples. I mean, on the other when he was on the other side of the table, when we were bargaining contracts. He was tough, um, but he. He's a person who's really open to trying to figure out how to solve a problem. So we worked together to uh, come up with a solution on health care that was remarkable. I mean, we saved hundreds of millions of dollars to the state of New Jersey and lowered workers' health care contributions significantly and maintained quality and, in fact, uh, you know, got the state much better deals than they had been having from providers. So that is the kind of thing that you can do with Matt Plackett, which is pretty remarkable. And that's example number one. And then the example I would give other uh, is where it's not an across-the-table thing is when we were working incredibly hard to get a $15 minimum wage. Matt Plackett took up the mantle that this had to be a $15 minimum wage that affected everybody, that we didn't want carve-outs, that we wanted to make sure that people really benefited from this change, that it wasn't just something that looked like a $15 minimum wage on paper. He did that over and over again in the kinds of reforms that came from the Murphy administration, making sure that there was broad applicability, that you weren't just making something look like you were doing something, but it really didn't affect many people. It was the opposite of that. So he's really interesting to work with. He's always looking for solutions and, I think, the public good. And it's, you know, that means that you're going to do things that are broad and serious. There are going to be people that don't like that. Sometimes people want someone who just makes everybody happy. That's not Matt. But uh, really, he's quite remarkable. You can be in the details, in the weeds, and you can also talk generally about what you're trying to accomplish. And I'm speaking with, with Hetty Rosenstein. We're, we're talking about Matt Platkin's nomination as Attorney General of New Jersey. I mean, Matt, Matt Platkin is young. He's 35. He's not the youngest person to ever serve as Attorney General, but he's, but he's young. Does, does that concern you at all? Um, no, I want to know who the youngest was, David. Well, the, the, the youngest was William Patterson, 1776, but he was, <laughs> he was 31. But, of course, people weren't living that long back then. So. That's right. Um, look, I think here's the thing that's so interesting about Matt Plackin. This is a person who, if they wanted to, you know, they can make a lot of money. They could go and, you know, and do something in private industry. Clearly comes from one of the top law schools. He's already had enough experience that he could go and do that. He wants to work for the public good and in the public interest that we have somebody who's 35 years old and wants to do this now and wants to make real change, lasting change, things that are good for people, that is a tremendous opportunity for us. That's incredible. You know, one of the questions I always ask when I see a young candidate or, or, or a young person 
holding a top government post and 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 I guess this comes from sort of from my own experience when I was I was in my early 20s serving in office and 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 I was you know I was at times too young to really do that does does Matt Platkin know what he doesn't know um well that's a good question look I don't know I don't know the answer to that I mean he's certainly been you know he's been in government now for you know, he was in government for three and a half years at a pretty high-level post. So it's not like he's walking in the door without knowing, uh, you know, what it's like to be in New Jersey state government. He certainly has, you know, he's been through the uh, knee-deep in alligators. I think he knows that part of it. Um, I think there's two parts to being a really young person, you know, and having an influential and important job. I came to the union, I was 26 years old. I you know, I became a local president at a fairly young age. I did lots and lots of things. And in one sense, yeah, I certainly have more greater wisdom now. And I know a lot of things now that I didn't know. But boy, did I have a fire in my belly and a level of creativity as a young person. He is a young person. He's not a child. He's an adult. He's got experience. I think he's going to be amazing. And he's creative and he wants to do good. And Hetty, there are, I mean, there are, this is not a slam dunk nomination. There are, there are criticisms of Matt Platt in it. Uh, he, he worked on Governor Murphy's campaign. There were, uh, there, there, there was intense criticism of how women were treated on the 2017 campaign. Uh, is, is, is that going to be a different, difficult hurdle for him to overcome as he seeks confirmation? Look, this has been an issue that, um, ha- that the governor has was criticized for, and there was a lot of discussion about uh, the campaign. I'm not aware of Matt having uh, a lot to do with the management of that campaign. What I can say is I was on the next campaign, and I certainly didn't see that. I saw women as the most important people on the campaign. I saw it as an intensely positive experience. So to the extent that it might have been true, this administration and Matt Plackin in particular, they change and they fix things. So I don't think that Matt Plackin had was responsible for some of the ugliness that has been expressed about the first campaign. But I do think he's responsible for saying when there are things like that, we have to change the policies. This administration has done a tremendous amount to try to repair, to be on the side of survivors, to be non-sexist, to bring women in, to bring a tremendously diverse uh, group of people in. So, no, I'm not worried about that. I'm really, I feel like those criticisms are things that are make people grow. And what about what about Republican I mean, Republicans this week said that Matt Plotkin, he was he I think he's he's probably authored he he and Paramount guard together more executive orders than than any council team in the in the history of New Jersey and people say that Governor Murphy ruled the state through executive orders and mandates and uh, uh, sort of unilaterally without uh, without the legislature's input uh, Matt. Matt was part of that. How important is that issue going to be in his confirmation process? I have no doubt that Republicans will complain about it. Um, But here is, yes, 
they passed executive orders that kept people safe in the worst pandemic in uh, a century and that resulted in thousands of people not getting sick who would have gotten sick. So I look, I think that this that Matt is a person who says we have a huge problem here. People in New Jersey are not safe. We need to be able to act and act quickly in order to keep them safe. And and we should talk about some of those executive orders. These are executive orders that made sure that essential workers, people in grocery stores, uh, people who were working in warehouses, which at that very point in time we desperately needed, they were things that protected those people so that they didn't get sick and die. I, I mean, that's, it was really important work. And I'm, I think we were so fortunate to be in New Jersey during this pandemic with the leadership that we had. can just imagine what it would have been like. We know what it's like in many of those Republican states right now where the actions are nothing less than irresponsible. So I'm glad that you have people like Matt Platkin who's serious about taking actions to protect people based upon science, not based upon politics. And I'm speaking with Hetty Rosenstein. We're, I mean, it always goes quickly when you and I speak, but, but uh, just before we end, Tell me about his confirmation process. I mean, you are you, you are from Essex County, like like I was, uh, and and there is senatorial courtesy, and he's got to get the approval of Democratic senators from Essex. Or are are, are you going to go lobby Senator Gill and Senator Rice and Senator Cody and and push them to sign off on him? Look, I think that they will, and I think that. Matt will talk to people and they know him. And at the end of the day, they will. But it would create tremendous disappointment here in Essex County if they didn't. These are we have great, great senators and legislators from Essex County who support the kinds of progressive public good point of view that Matt Platkin does. I think that he will have their support. I think he'll have the support of the Senate. And I think we're going to have a great attorney general, and it's going to be an historic pick. And and I'm speaking with Hetty Rosenstein. We're just about done. I think I have just a couple seconds. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead to 2025. Any favorites for you for, for governor? Oh, not yet. Not yet. I, I will keep asking you, just like I'll ask Congressman Cheryl, I'll keep asking you. Uh, Hetty Rosenstein, former state director of the CWA, thank you, as always, for coming on. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. And you have been listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC.